This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. In the last large-scale fight over net neutrality, copyright somehow became part of the discussion. Specifically, that the promise of the free and open internet includes allowing user-generated uploads on YouTube to continue, even when they use music that doesn't belong to them. Right now in Washington, there's a new move by the FCC to overturn net neutrality. What will it mean for musicians if this is accomplished? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. On today's show, we're going to go over the basics of net neutrality, what it is, why it's important, and what the alternatives might look like. Then we're going to talk to Greg Saunier of Deerhoof about net neutrality, YouTube, and how Google keeps getting away with being the beneficiary of the free and open internet, to the tune of billions of dollars. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Peter Gordon of Thirsty Ear. Peter, welcome to the future of what. Thank you, Portia. Great to be here and great to be talking to you again. I know. It's been a while. So our episode today, we're kind of breaking down this net neutrality issue. So I wanted you to come on to just give a good overview of net neutrality and why it's important for the music business. Net neutrality asks the question or states that the internet is created as an open resource for all people to use without barriers. And we want to keep it that way. The complication is the internet has become something that no one anticipated. And there's a great deal of trade that goes through it. There's a great deal of speech that goes through it, expression. And then, of course, how it drills down to the creative community, which is is our great concern. How does that affect us? And the camps are, leave it the way it is, ain't broke, don't fix it. Call it Title II or a common carrier, regulated like the, the phone industry, meaning it's an essential need. So don't mess with it. And then there's the commercial side that says, hang on, you know, we need money for infrastructure. We need to make money on this and we shouldn't be held back. And that's the kind of fragile discussion that everyone's trying to figure out. How do you balance the commercial concerns against the basic freedoms that we want embedded in the Internet? So the discussion right now that's been swirling about really is is basically a discussion between the big ISPs and the public. And the big ISPs are saying, we would love to be able to charge different amounts for different tiers of access. And the public, on the other hand, is saying, and many other organizations are saying, we can't do that. We have to keep the internet open as it has been in the past. When you start creating tiers and charging for it, it's discrimination, basically, because you're discriminating against people who can't afford to pay for different tiers. Is that your understanding? Well, you're using the term discrimination. They're saying let the market rise where it is. If you can afford it, you can go in the fast lane. If you can't, you're on the right lane, in the slow lane with the trucks going up the hill. But yes, they're basically saying this is a commercial enterprise. We should be able to make money on it. We've, we put money into it. We have to service it. We have to support it. Why can't we treat it like any other business we have out there? And of course, you have to look at the practical use of the internet. It's been an explosion for the creative community, for discovery, for access, and and why should we give that away? And then you have to look at what is the internet, right? And the internet isn't isn't solely about these internet service providers bringing it to your home. It's it's this whole other larger infrastructure that ties around the world that they're not a part of. So they're kind of hijacking the entire technology or the cost of the technology for their portion of it. And it, it throws us into this debate on how do you regulate it? Because you obviously, on the one hand, we want infrastructure to continue, meaning we want to be able to get into all homes in America and we all we want to be able to have a free flowing access and speed. On the other hand, we don't want to create this uh, tiered system 
which essentially means those of us in the independent community end up on the slow lane. And, you know, people by nature, if you don't get it instantly, you move on, which means we're going to cut off a lot of our natural access. And as a result, the debate is now being passed between the FCC, which regulated it as a common carrier, and they'd like the FTC to do it as, as a trade situation. And I personally think there's somewhere in the middle of what the internet is, because it, it both has trade, but it's also a point of freedom of expression, which is FCC. And it's a basic, as radio is regulated by the FCC, meaning there's a, a public service requirement for all radio. I think there's an element of that for the internet because it's essentially, you can go to streaming, you can do what you do on your podcast, radio that streams, it really falls in that category of public service for public good. So there's no magic bullet, but I think if both sides can get a little taste of what they want without being highly restrictive, we can move it forward. But that's now asking Washington to do its job and to uh, speak across the aisle. Right, which, of course, is not going so well, as we know well. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting conundrum because in addition to all the points that you've made, there's also the point that it's really difficult to get people to change or to desire change something that's different from what they're used to. And this would be a big change for, for the way that most people are living their lives in America today in terms with regard to the Internet. Well, you look at quality of life, right? Has the Internet improved? Well, let me ask you, has it improved your quality of life? Has it improved your business? Has it improved what you do? Are you living a better life today than pre- 2000, let's say. Well, I'm a bad person to ask because I would say the way, the major way that the internet has improved my life is by helping me win arguments with my husband when we can't remember a certain detail and somebody can Google it and find out really quickly <laughs> instead of having to have these arguments that hang over your head until you can get to a library and find out the answer. You know, but other than that, yeah. I mean, obviously it's had a huge impact on my life. You know, ever I do everything on the internet now that I used to do with the phone and, oh man, I bet you guys have the same situation that we have, but we have boxes and boxes of faxes, which have now started to fade away. So it's blank paper with like some ghosts of brown writing on it. So I have no idea. We may have, you know, signed many deals that I know nothing about because they're all gone on fax paper. <laughs> Disappeared, yeah. Well, let's look at our creative community, right? We're in the business of helping artists along to try to bring them to a larger audience, right? And we want them to have a really kind of fertile playground to develop them, right? I mean, that's good for us, good for them, good for their future. And if you look at the music sector as sort of an ecosystem with all, all the various players in it, it's, it's very diverse and it's very inclusive, right? And that gives everyone a chance to work with everyone else. And a lot of the, 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 the equal ground is based on the internet brings a lot of people forward. If you start choking that, then the, the creative community is then almost back 50 years, 30 years ago, when the exposure was limited to a couple of genres, a, a few major labels, and the rest were choked out. So we'd almost be turning the clock back quite a bit. And then, of course, there's the argument that we pay for play in terms of access is the equivalent of hail on radio and that it's serving to, you know, stifle our area versus encourage and nurture it and uh, give everyone a better quality of life. So I think it's where you put your priorities and where you put the country in terms of how you best serve it and, and how you protect its cultural economy. And if this country believes that its cultural economy is something to protect and to promote, and usually it's the best uh, ambassadors out there for the world, then this is a no-brainer. If it's capitalism at work and grab every nickel and dime you can, regardless of collateral damage, then the ISPs are going to work. So it's basic core values we're talking about. here. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. Let me bring up something else, because this has crept in in past attempts to legislate net neutrality and in a variety of ways. There's been this interesting conflation where net neutrality and freedom of access has gotten 
conflated with the copyright debate. And I feel like we saw that six or seven years ago when the bills, the SOPA and PIPA bills were introduced. And at the time, I recall feeling like SOPA and PIPA were positive for the music industry because they reinforced some copyright legislation that that actually said that copyright owners and copyright holders got to have some say in what where our copyright appears on the internet. But the bills were defeated, and they were defeated partially by an argument that conflated the openness of the net with sort of this freedom to use copyright, even if it's held by other people. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Well, the openness of the net is part of the sentence. It's open and legal access to material. That copyright is is constitutional right. It's something that we've created for an industry. So I think you're taking just a partial explanation of open, that a copyright is a point of protection and is meant to encourage, frankly, entrepreneurs across the board, not just in the music industry, but copyright trademarks the whole bit. And I'm not sure why the internet per se needs to get a pass on not honoring what copyright means in the world just because it's a new technology. It still needs to be a law-abiding citizen, uh, in which case it's a fairly simple conversation. What it does is the use and abuse of copyright is uh, quite attractive to the search engines, to the ISPs, because it, it creates more need to be on the internet because uh, everything's available to you. There's there's no restrictions in terms of who has it and where has it. It's, it's available and, and duplicate, triplicate, 100 times over. So we're looking at a commercial need to create a robust search versus uh, a constitutional need to have access on a legal basis, not because it's there and someone grabbed it. So I, I think it's a little unfair to play the open card because open is, uh, you need to qualify what open means. Well, I'd agree, but I know that the Googles of the world were very successful in sort of aligning themselves with the free internet people in overturning those two bills with this sort of argument that, you know, it's stifling art and creativity to force people to enforce copyright legislation, basically, which, you know, coming from an independent label position, it seems crazy <laughs> to me. It seems very difficult to get behind that because, you know, using other people's art for your own purposes seems like something you should at least ask before you do. Well, absolutely. Look, it was a wild west when the internet started and nobody really wants to tame it. And a lot of people are making a lot of money off of it because of the fast and loose rules and enforcement. So they don't want that taken away. Why should they? I think you could you could go the other way and say if, the, if everybody involved in music and theater and the arts and any of the performing arts, if we just one day took all our stuff off the internet, would we then be in a better position to negotiate with so-called open and free things because no one's going to be searching anymore because a lot of the good stuff is now gone. So you can't argue out of convenience or inconvenience, and eventually you kill the golden goose. If you take away the creative sector, how are you going to populate the internet if you're looking for uh, some kind of musical entertainment? (laughs) And on that note, Peter Gordon from Thirsty Ear. Thank you so much for being my guest today on The Future of What? Portia, thank you. Nice to talk to you again. We are young, we are weak, just as blank as we
That was Working Poor by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and win a Future of What t-shirt. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Evan Greer of fightforthefuture.org. Evan, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks so much for having me on. So today we're talking to you because Fight for the Future is an organization that comes top of mind when people think the topic of net neutrality. And that's been in the news a bunch lately. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to tell us everybody in, on this side, what's so important about net neutrality? So net neutrality is basically the first amendment of the internet. It's the basic principle that protects our freedom of speech and freedom of expression and makes the internet into this awesome, cool, weird, diverse place that it is where we can access so much information and music and creativity and where everyone has a voice, not just people with lots of money to pay to get their voice heard. Right. And the problem with the idea of net neutrality is, or net unneutrality or whatever you would, however you would call it is the idea of creating basically different tiers of access, right? So people would have to pay a certain amount to get certain content, and that would probably be created by like the ISPs, right? Yeah, so it's actually even more serious than that. Net neutrality prevents big internet service providers, so Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, et cetera, from blocking websites outright from charging us extra fees to access the content that we want to access online, and also from slowing down or throttling certain services, either because those services aren't willing or able to pay them extra fees, or because they want to prioritize services that they own. So again, you know, think about Comcast, who owns MSNBC. They could easily slow down another news agency's website because they want everyone to go to MSNBC to find out what's going on that day. Or you could imagine a world where they start offering a streaming music service, and then they want to slow down some of the streaming music services that many of us use now to prioritize the one that they're using. So this is definitely something that affects our pocketbook and you know how much we pay to access the current internet. But it's also about kind of destroying this basic principle that's made the internet into such a platform for innovation, where independent voices, independent artists are able to get our music and get our art and get our creativity out to the world and make a living doing it without having to pay or make deals with companies like Comcast and Verizon. Yeah. And I mean, I think everyone, certainly everyone in the music business that I'm familiar with would agree with that. Like we definitely want that to be continued and and because it it benefits everybody it doesn't discriminate against anybody and on some level I'm sure that the ISPs are annoyed because they can imagine a world in which their profit structure was different right they could make more money by having a less free and open internet less net neutrality but you know there's another topic here that you guys have I mean I don't really know for sure what the position of fight for the future is on this but the issue of copyright is a little more difficult, I think, in the music sphere. And so I'm interested in your opinion on that as a musician. Yeah, for sure. Just to give your listeners context, I dropped out of college and toured around. I'm a queer, independent folk artist. I supported my family doing that for a number of years. I bought a, a tiny little apartment in Boston with money that I made selling CDRs that I was slinging out of my suitcase. And so I, the issue of, of artists being able to make a living and being able to create art and support ourselves doing it is really important to me. From my perspective, I'm also very concerned around protecting, again, this transformative power of the internet. And we've seen repeatedly over the last decade or so that the U.S.'s broken copyright system, which in my opinion largely benefits the largest corporate record labels and executives over independent voices, independent artists, small labels, etc., has been repeatedly used for systems of internet censorship. For example, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech being taken down off of YouTube by EMI to you know all the content that gets scrubbed from the internet because there's a copyrighted song playing in the background to far-right organizations using copyright claims to take down criticism by LGBT groups. There's just been a long history of 
that system being used as a system for censorship. And from my perspective, most independent artists are not having a hit made to their living by someone uploading a video that has their song in the background. What's you know hurting us is not having platforms that allow people to support our work or a culture where people think that they shouldn't. And I think that a lot of work is being done to transform that. But I think for me, you know, seeing copyright as the beyond end all of, of how artists can support ourselves and make a living just doesn't pan out for the vast majority of people. And really, I think the extremely strict rules that we have now have largely benefited the biggest players at the expense of smaller players and independent voices that make up the fabric of the music community that I think most of us see ourselves as part of. And so, yeah, I guess that's a little bit of a ramble on that. But those are some of my thoughts there. Yeah, no, I've, I think you make a really good point. And certainly, I mean, I run a label called Kill Rockstars for a reason. You know? <laughs> exactly. I'm not about to rush to the defense of the ham-handed actions of major labels. Like, definitely no one, they're going to go down in history for not doing the right thing in a lot of their opportunities along the way. But that said, you know, YouTube has been in the news a lot lately. And and I think the big problem with YouTube for me, besides the fact that Google is getting rich by exploiting a loophole in the DMCA, which is a 20-year-old law regarding how people should be allowed to use the internet that needs to be updated or scrapped or something, you know, we need to revisit that. But the biggest issue for me is really one of consent. And I think that that's you know, it's like copyright or no copyright, I'd think that artists should always be allowed to have consent over whether or not their art is used in anything, you know, because basically, you know, especially if you're if you're doing like another piece of art, because maybe, you know, the person who's the musician doesn't support the art that you're making or whatever and doesn't want their music to be used as part of your art. I mean, I can see that happening. You know, it doesn't always happen. And sometimes collaboration is the best form of, you know, creating new art. But I just think the issue of consent is one that really needs to be looked at. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a really important point, you know, but I also think it's it's always great to like think of, of sort of extreme examples, right? Like let's say there's a super homophobic band that writes a really terrible song that's really offensive to me and my community. And then I want to like, you know, sample that in a song where I'm like critiquing them you know, that clearly should be protected, right? Like that's a form of political freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And so when we have these systems in place that are automated or that don't allow for that kind of nuance, we lose some of that ability to freely express ourselves. And so I think there's some degree of a trade-off where we want to create a culture where people are all about supporting artists, where artists have control of our art and the things that we make and of our music. But we don't want that system to then be kind of mechanized enough that it can be used for political censorship or to, to stifle independent voices or to stifle the voices of marginalized artists and musicians, you know, and prioritize the mainstream. So I think that's where it gets tricky and, and the mechanics of it are really, really important. Because again, as soon as you have a system in place that allows for any kind of automated censorship, it's inevitably going to get abused by those forces that have the, the most money to spend tracking down those claims or those forces that have the most political influence. I mean, so while I think it's totally you know, valid and we should be concerned about these giants like YouTube and Spotify and you know, pushing on them to do better by the artists that they're making a lot of money off of, I think you know, more broadly, we have to just come up with really good ways to keep the control of our art in the hands of the artists. I think that's what it really comes down to for me. And I don't think I agree with you that I think our current copyright system doesn't do that. And I think that is fight for the future's position as well. I can totally imagine a world in which every usage that someone wants to make, I mean, and because it's done in the licensing world, right? I mean, if, if somebody wants to license an Elliott Smith song from the Keras catalog to go into a movie, they contact us and then we run it by the family. And if the family says yes, then we, we allow the usage. I can't imagine a system. I know what you're saying about like an automated system. I'm not sure that that's what anyone would advocate for is like some sort of creepy automated system where you're just not allowed or like where everything is flagged and you just can't move forward. And I know that that has happened in YouTube in the past, but that's not the current model, I hope. Because the idea is just like you should be able to actually connect with the person that you want to collaborate with or that you want to use their piece of music or their piece of art. So I'm imagining a system that's more like the licensing system and less like you can't use this content. It's automated. I, I totally hear that. And maybe we're not there yet. Maybe we need to like work towards that. I think the thing, the part that rankles for me is that while we're obviously against like Verizon, Comcast and these huge ISPs making money 
benefiting off the system. We have this giant, enormous corporation, Google, that's just making tons of money off all this user-generated content constantly every single day. And we're kind of rolling over to that. We're just kind of being like, okay, well, I guess that's the situation. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think, again, to me, that really underscores the need for net neutrality, right? So without net neutrality, the big internet companies that have become so centralized and that right now control so much of our online experience are basically all we get forever because those companies are going to be able to pay those fees to Comcast and Verizon and AT&T and no one will ever be able to compete with them, right? And I think that the centralization of the internet and giants like Facebook and Google and the degree of control that they have over everything is hugely problematic. And, you know, absolutely something that anyone that cares about our democracy or about the future of the Internet or the future of art and music and creativity needs to be concerned about. But what's happening right now in Congress is you'll see basically they're trying to turn this into a partisan issue or make it seem like it's just a battle between, you know, Google and Comcast, basically. Right. With all of us stuck in the middle when the reality is that, you know, these net neutrality protections are exactly what is going to allow for us to push toward the decentralization of these things, to push for services that can compete with the Googles and Facebooks of the world that are controlled by artists. And you can imagine a very, very different internet where, you know, we control the content that we create. You know, I mean, I think services like Bandcamp are like a really great example that are getting really big and that, you know, don't seem to be based off of exploitation, but, you know, are really trying to provide a service and a platform for artists. And I think in the same way that that labels like Kill Rockstars have for for years of, you know, really trying to empower artists and, and give them a platform. And so I think, you know, it's absolutely something to be concerned about. To me, really underscores why we need net neutrality to ensure that, you know, the Facebooks and Googles of the world don't get to control the Internet forever because they absolutely shouldn't. And, you know, we need an Internet that is decentralized and diverse and where independent voices can compete and can can rise and gain attention and gain an audience. You know, that's what the Internet has been so amazing for. And so I think I would just caution people, you know, to be skeptical when lawmakers who take large amounts of money from telecom companies start trying to frame any of these battles as as if they're just a battle between two big industries, when in reality, there's so much more at stake. Yeah. And I think that my concern has been that Google has really managed to, you know, they're benefiting from the net neutrality argument, right? They they can support the net neutrality argument, but they can slide the copyright problem in there without people noticing it. Because most people, like nine out of 10 people, don't really understand copyright. And I think that, you know, because the major labels have done such a poor job of asserting their copyrights in various situations, you know, the whole notion of copyright has seemed, I think for most people, has just become kind of unpalatable. It's like, oh, gross. Like, that's what those majors are doing to, you know, shut down some grandma somewhere, (laughs) like, you know, stifle somebody's creativity somewhere. And Google just gets to sort of profit off that without anybody having to take the copyright argument very seriously. And I'm just concerned about that. Yeah, again, you know, I think it's really important that we hold all of these tech giants accountable, whether it's Google or Facebook or Comcast or Verizon, you know, they're not the internet. And I think that's something that's so important here. You know, members of Congress right now are trying to push for legislation that they're going to call a compromise, but don't be fooled by it. It's absolutely simply an attempt to strip us of these net neutrality protections. And they would love to go into a back room with the CEOs of, of Google and Facebook and Comcast and Verizon and come out with a deal and they want to basically say, like, you know, we talked to the Internet, quote unquote, and, and this is the deal we came up with. But Google and Facebook shouldn't be able to represent the Internet. They're not the Internet. I think when people think of the Internet, they think of all of the cool, interesting, you know, strange nooks and crannies of it that, that make it so much better than cable TV or than mainstream radio ever was. And these politicians shouldn't be able to make decisions that affect the very fabric of the internet in a closed door meeting with CEOs from giant companies. This should absolutely be about hearing from the public, hearing from internet users, hearing from creators and musicians and artists and innovators, the people who actually make the internet so great and so powerful. And so, you know, that's really what we as Fight for the Future have been trying to do, trying to make it easy for ordinary people, small businesses, artists and and creative types to make their voices heard in this process so that it isn't something that can just be decided by a few quote unquote major players while leaving out the people and the institutions that really make up the web and make it into such a transformative platform and something that really furthers our democracy and democratizes our economy rather than doing the opposite. Cool. 
Well, Evan Greer, thank you very much for being with me today on The Future of What. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I've been a big fan of the label and and lots of your artists and friends with some of them for many years. So it's great to be on and, and thanks for everything that you all do. That was Big Kid Table by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to the future of what? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to Greg Saunier of Deerhoof. Greg, welcome to the future of what? Thanks, Portia. Why is it called that? Why is it called the future of what? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it's like uh, future already implies an unknown. Right. And then what implies an unknown. So it's kind of like putting two question marks in a row and calling it a podcast title. That's exactly right. Well, I think the music industry is a lot like that because, I mean, certainly when we started three years ago, we had no idea, Mm. you know, that was the heyday of all this, you know, (laughs) what's going on with Spotify and what's going on with YouTube and what's going on with everything. And we didn't even know if we were going to have an industry in the next (laughs) few years. 
And tell me about it. Yeah, and you sh- you know that well because you're trying to be a career indie we're rocker. We're trying to be industrious. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to be industrious and have squeaked by so far. Yes, in a questionable industry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about today because people are getting pretty complacent about Spotify in the last few months. Everyone's kind of be like, oh, thank God. Well, we're making some money on it, so we're going to calm down about it. <laughs> I don't know you if You know that's... somebody making money from Spotify? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you know? Taylor Swift, Kanye West. I mean, uh, you know, what are you talking about? Well, you know, some people are. Some, you know, our label does pretty well with a lot of our artists. Do pretty well on Spotify, oh, really? which is surprising. Oh, great, great to hear. But Spotify is a crapshoot, right? It's it's kind of like licensing. It's like you get struck by lightning or you don't. You know, you get selected for a bunch of playlists, in which case lots of people hear you and stream you or they don't, you know? Right. So there's still a large element of chance to that. But, you know, the the big offender, the prime offender at the moment that people are real incensed about is, is YouTube. And, mm-hmm. and so you wrote an interesting post responding to a Washington Post article about why musicians are annoyed about YouTube. And I really wanted to talk to you about that post because I thought you made just a succession of excellent points. <laughs> oh, no. What did I say? <laughs> Maybe I was in a testy mood that day. Well, something. Your first point was it casts YouTube as the bad guys for paying so much less than good guys Spotify without mentioning what a shameful pittance Spotify pays, which is, I think you should talk about that. I mean, this is, you're a working band. This is your livelihood, right? Yeah. Spotify, you know, in the in the context of the article, I mean, I agreed with the article and I thought it contained a lot of really helpful information and statistics. And I also thought it was wonderful to have such a mainstream outlet writing about what has kind of until recently been a sort of arcane topic amongst just musicians who are then therefore seen as whiny, you know, for even bringing up the topic in the first place. And so I thought this article was great, but I did notice that things other than YouTube are posited as the example of how it ought to be done. And then YouTube is, is an offender simply because the percentage that they pay is lower than something like Spotify pays. But anybody who's like taking, you know, 60 seconds to look at what Spotify pays knows that it's, <laughs> I mean, it's no comparison to what it has successfully replaced and deliberately replaced. Right. What it's replaced is record labels where people listen to record put out by record labels. Spotify is no replacement for that on many levels. I mean, when, when Deerhoof was on Hill Rockstars, your label, for many years, you know, our deal was always the same and always artist-friendly and, you know, it was basically just splitting everything in half, the cost. And then, you know, in Deerhoof's cases, the costs were extremely low because we were always recording ourselves on 4-track and stuff like that. But but, I mean, it's not like Spotify is, is splitting the profit with their bands. I mean, they, they pay, you know, I forget how many zeros it is after the decimal point, you know. <laughs> it's a lot, <laughs> yeah. Play, right? There's it's a, a lot, lot of yeah. zeros, you know. You, you've you've got to be a, a PhD in mathematics to be able to say exactly what level of a millionth or something like that, that of a cent we're talking about per play. And that doesn't even count what I think is almost a bigger fact that I can't understand how it's not being pointed out constantly, which is, you know, if Spotify is a replacement for record labels, as far as the listener is concerned, I'm like, well, okay, you know, I used to get my music listening from to rock stars, and now I get it from Spotify. It's the same band, and I'm listening to the same music, and it's great. Without mentioning that a record label funds <laughs> the creation of the music in the first place. I mean, Spotify is not an advance to, to make a record so that they can then pay us one millionth of a cent per play on Spotify or right. or YouTube, same thing, so they can send one billionth of a cent per play on YouTube. But there's no, nothing, there's no A&R, there's no development, there's no pep talk, there's no consultation, there's no in-house design person. There's no friend who does masterings for cheap 
or there's no like special deal that you have with the factory or what, you know, all the things that were to the great advantage of the artist, if they ever were able to get on a record label and kill rock stars, one of the, uh, certainly one of the greatest labels of all time in the history of record labels. Nobody seems to mention that these things that record labels do for bands like funding the recording of a record or giving tour support to a band after the record comes out, or they've got a deal on printing posters to send out to venues, or they they just consult on like, hey, I think this should be the single from the record, or they they give, you know, pep talks when the when the band is feeling doubtful about, you know, how the recording's coming along. Any of these things that that made being on a record label mean that you had a music career have been, I mean, that are, are simply absent when your music career consists of just hoping you get plays on Spotify. Right. I think the, the word that you used in your post was investment, and I think that's really a uh, yeah. good point. Spotify does not invest any money at all in bands. Right. So if, you know, from a fan's perspective, sure, it looks like it's the same thing, but to an artist... You know, a label is who invests in you and supports you and, and helps you move from one record to the next and hires your publicist and, you know, sends the 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 St. Bernard with a thing of brandy around its neck when you're stranded somewhere. You know, I mean, record labels actually care and Spotify is not, that's not their business model. They're not investing in bands. Well, I mean, they they realized that they didn't have to, and why would you include that if you can avoid if you can make uh, many thousands the amount of money, right, <laughs> as a record label for doing many thousands of a fraction, you know, of the work, then um, I mean, a human wouldn't do that, but the sort of like uh, a, a person who's been brainwashed into believing that the only thing that counts is the bottom line which is, of course, a, a basic assumption before you can even get hired at such a place. Right. And has found the perfect business model, because the thing is, it's like they're never going to run out of desperate musicians. Right, right. Who want to throw the dice and see if like, maybe they do get on the playlist. And, and for every million musicians who post a video of themselves playing a song on YouTube, well, then there'll be one who becomes a YouTube star. And then that example can be pointed to as why it's a viable model. Yeah, you're absolutely right.
That was Believe ESP by Deerhoof. We're talking to Greg Sonye of Deerhoof. I think another point I want to touch on because I think it's so important and I'm glad that you mentioned it in your post is that we talk all the time about having to play whack-a-mole. And I think what people forget is that the YouTube model has taken away even the most basic form of consent from an artist. Like, even if you're going to pay us like crap, the very least artists should have the ability to say yes or no. And the whole YouTube model has just done away with that completely. You have no choice. Your only choice is to play this stupid whack-a-mole, which doesn't work, and have your stuff up there, regardless of whether you want it up there or not. And and I think that that's, I just think that that's something that people really should try to understand if they don't understand it. (laughs) I've got some bad news for you, because just last night, I was on YouTube and for some reason was was looking at the Deer Hub channel on YouTube. I can't remember why I was there, but oh, I know what it was. It was this morning. It was it was International Cat Day, <laughs> <laughs> and since Deer Hub has several songs about cats, I was like, oh, I should I should <laughs> post some of our cat songs. And of course, I went. You know, I was just like, okay, well, let me check YouTube and see if there's any like versions of us, you know, playing this song, you know, in some dingy club somewhere. And then I I realized that, the, the, I mean, first of all, some of these Kill Rockstar songs that were about cats were backed up. Uh, YouTube had put them up, thought we had gotten them to take it down, but they're back. And then I, you know, looked into it further and realized that, you know, a whole bunch of Kill Rockstar's records are back on YouTube in full. And I think that if somebody looking at a video of a band and say it's Deerhoof, because this is the case I know, and there's a user called Deerhoof-Topic. What that is, and this is this is what I'm reporting to you now, has happened again in the case of Deerhoof's records, Kill Rockstar's records. YouTube itself has robots that automatically steal your music. You know, any commercially released music is automatically stolen automatically posted onto an auto-generated YouTube channel. And then that video of that song is now available for free (laughs) competing against your version that you're trying to sell. Right. I mean, now I don't know what kind of customer would prefer to buy a version than a free version, but it would have to be somebody who already understands the whole story that I just explained and feels morally compelled to contribute to the idea that the band might be able to survive as musicians rather than just have their work digitized for free. What I think the music listener doesn't always understand, (laughs) and I think that the Washington Post article only went part of the way to help clarify is that there's an image of anyone like you or me who's raising the question of whether (laughs) musicians have any rights in this era might feel that we're attempting to revive the Napster argument in which the successful musician, the prime example of which is Lars Ulrich, is starting a fight with his own fans. So it's the music listener versus the musician. And the reason that I think that that's a myth and that that image of of what the conflict is here is so inaccurate is because (laughs) as long as it appears that the fans are fighting with the musicians and that the musicians are whining about the fans, then actual beneficiary gets to laugh all the way to the bank. The actual beneficiary is a 
a couple enormous corporations. One's enormous, you know, multi Well, I'm not sure, actually. Spotify always claims that they're taking a loss all the time, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure where, where their finances are at right now. And then you're talking about YouTube. I mean, that's Google. That's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, corporation in the history of humankind. We're talking a, a, a company that, that makes hundreds of billions of dollars every year from ads, and they're the ones who benefit if, you know, the, the, the fight should be between musicians and music fans versus complete corporate takeover of the existence of music in this world. I mean, <laughs> you know, to the point where I mean, it's not just, you know, bands in 2017 that are, you know, struggling to try and get a few plays on YouTube and get a few cents out of it. I mean, we're talking about the wholesale digitization of anything Google can locate that any human has ever created in past, present, or future. I mean, it's obviously not just the music, it's the written word, it's visual art. It's, I mean, they, they want to have a free library of everything and pay nobody anything. And I think you're right, Porter, when you call it a business model. It's not like a few slip-ups happened. Right, right. This doesn't happen by accident. It happened by accident. You do not become a hundred billions of dollars corporation by accident. It's an actual model. It's a system. And um, when you talk to someone who works for Google, you find that they may be very much like you in almost every way until you get on the subject of this sort of mega capitalism, basically libertarianism, monopolies, and antitrust issues. And suddenly, the, this person who is otherwise very friendly and seems to see eye to eye with you on on any kind of political issue you might want to bring up, but the more cutthroat, you know, believes that capitalism is an inevitable and not even regrettable aspect of human nature or even animal nature or maybe even plants. I don't know, <laughs> you know, that somehow natural course of things that. In 2017, with Google having the finances and the power that it currently has, that that somehow is a moral and correct culmination of humanity that has simply been mistaken all these other centuries and has finally found its most natural and true and correct expression in enormous corporate monopolies that spy on your every online move and force you to look at advertising. Nowhere in the model is there any accounting of whether a human being might also be creative for any purpose other than increasing Google's profit margin. There's no space for considering whether a human being might also have human nature tendencies that we might describe as cooperation or families or caretaking or love or helping or sympathy or, you know, these are all equally human characteristics, right? But these are natural too. I mean, you can go as far back into the, you know, with the beginning of 2001, the space odyssey, of, you know, look at these, uh, you know, ape creatures or whatever and, and say like, yeah, there are various things that you can call human nature, and, and capitalism is not the only one. Capitalism is a, is a very specific and violent economic system that was invented in the 18th century or whatever it was, 17th, I think it was 18th century. You know, Adam Smith, it's a, it's a superstructure that had to be forced upon human beings. And, and when we say violent, I don't mean a theoretically or a kind of I don't mean it in a poetic way. I mean it's physically violent, or there's the threat of physical violence in order to force it to exist on people who don't want it. So, yeah, no, you too. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I, I think that <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to put it. I think we have been, as a culture, we've rolled over incredibly, surprisingly easily to this false dichotomy that you put forward that somehow any kind of dispute in the music industry is between fans and musicians yeah. and that musicians are all fat cats who are just lounging around <laughs> in their yachts 
and saying, well, it's not fair. I don't have enough. You know, you're paying me less money and that's not fair. And now I can't get my fourth car or whatever. I don't think I don't think we've rolled over easily, actually. I mean, in a way, I'm glad that you said it that way, because because I don't even agree with that. I don't think it's easy at all. And I think that the amount of I mean, if we just look at the numbers, you know, literally how many dollars is Google spending to convince everybody to roll over to that way of thinking? That's true. Again, that's a good point. It doesn't happen by accident. Right. Right. Their budget is unlimited. They have infinity money, but but then they they also have departments, you know, filled with people whose job it is to do nothing more and rationalize what they do right. and find the way to intellectually twist it enough that is good rather than evil. Right. And they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vast infrastructure within the company that's devoted only to convincing themselves and convincing all of us, as, you know, as you put it, that somehow this is right. I mean, here's a big part of it, too. They're not just convincing all of us with well-designed web pages and, and general air of cuteness and et cetera. They also, you know, I mean, they can afford a rather sizable lobbying <laughs> department. Absolutely. That, you know, Absolutely. That has also convinced lawmakers not to update copyright law That's right. or radio law. And I know you and I have talked about copyright in the past or publishing, you know, many times in the past because I've always found it so confusing. <laughs> um, but it's like the, the copyright law that you and I discuss, you know, when we're talking about like having songs on a record label, how much publishing if a record sells or if it plays on a radio station or if it if it gets in a TV show or, or versus in an ad or something like that. And the laws about copyrights and radio play are woefully out of date and, and have not been updated to account for the completely different system that's now in use for recorded music plays which is obviously online, digital. So I'm saying that there's a well-paid lobbying force that is hired to prevent any changes to copyright law so that the obscene level of profit, not just profit, but increase in profit every year um, can be continued. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a crazy thing about it. It's not just, oh, Google makes a lot of money. They made four hundred billion dollars, you know, this year, and they're going to make four hundred billion dollars next year. No, <laughs> they have investors who expect to be paid more. In other words, for their investment to to grow. Right. And that's one of the, the dangers of having a company that large is that past a certain point, how can you even grow anymore? Right. Once you've digitized everything, you know, and you're a monopoly, and you're the only search engine. You know, I don't know, maybe Ask Jeeves is still there, but I mean, if you're the only uh, <laughs> search engine in use across the globe, how can you even find any other ways to increase your profit margin, especially when your profit margin is that large? I mean, you're, you're almost compelled to start finding nefarious, very problematic or questionable, morally questionable Mm. Right. To be able to, not, nobody's ever tried to make that much profit before in the history of the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have a question, a related question for your opinion, because I think one of the ways that Google's been successful is that they have allied themselves to messages that people want to hear. So, for example, the entire net neutrality debate, exactly. which right. I think all of us would agree is absolutely crucial. We yeah. We want the net to remain neutral has somehow managed to get the tech people allied with Google, like the, the people who want net neutrality allied with Google. And then this other message crept in, which is we don't need copyright anymore. Exactly. It's like that little secret message suddenly. And because nine out of 10 people don't care because they're not copyright holders, like musicians. Well, exactly. They don't really notice. No, like I just told you, like I just told you, I am a musician. I've been, you know, my, my entire adult life, I've been a musician. And, and I still, still would come to you confused. <laughs> Portia, can you explain this copyright stuff to me? It seems so arcane. It seems so confusing. Like the Deer Hoops, the publishing helpers 
are still terror bird like they have been for years. And I'm always asking, like, wait, what do you mean again when it's like when you when you use this jargon and that that technical right. term and what's the, <laughs> what am I actually going to earn again and what do you earn and what's your right. you know it's it's very confusing and I agree you know it's a it's a very obvious and uh, you know so far somewhat successful strategy on the part of these corporate monsters to conflate net neutrality with free and open internet. You know, it's like perfectly nebulous terms so that it makes it sound like it's both championing net neutrality, which I agree with you is is an issue on the left that everybody agrees with, with everything on the internet should be free um, for for me. (laughs) Therefore, nobody... Nobody who created any of that stuff on the internet that I'm using should ever be paid anything for it. Right, right. And that's a problem for all of us who do hold copyrights because, you know, I love I love the part in your um, post where you say that Google's model of digitizing all creative work of human history free for the user has left wreckage where there used to be creative industries and made Google more money than they can figure out what to do with. <laughs> I did, I, that was that was very good, Greg. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, the wreckage, wreckage. I, I re- the word wreckage. I I lifted from Jonathan Kaplan's somewhat new book, Move Fast and Break Things, right. which is about Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and the takeover of the marketplace, and and particularly. His career has been in music and in film, and so he's seen it, and he's had a long career, so he's seen the change that's occurred and, and seen the wreckage you know, as it was being wrecked before his eyes and tells it in a really, I think, in an you know, incredibly clear way. I mean, I really recommend this book. It, it makes a ton of sense, and it's actually really quick and, and easy read and really helped me to understand more. I mean, I was already, like, kind of, getting pretty hot on this before there's a, a friend of mine here called uh, Mark Rebo, a, a pretty well-known guitar player and a friend of mine and, a, 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 you know, a real musical hero of mine ever since the early days of the Earth. I mean, Satomi and I, in the early days of the band, were always listening to Mark Rebo, you know, as a musical inspiration. And, you know, your podcast listeners might know him for a lot of the sessions that he's played, like he plays on a lot of Tom Waits records. Oh, yeah. I think he played a lot of the guitar in um, the Departed uh, soundtrack, et cetera, et cetera. And he's some bazillions of things. He was somebody who was first, you know, bringing up this topic to me about, you know, maybe four or five years ago, you know, attempting to stage demonstrations and, and do benefit concerts. I mean, it was almost pretty small. But even that, it was kind of amazing how even just a few musicians pointing out the obvious that a company such as Google has managed to obscure for the rest of us puts them in such a panic that they bend pretty quickly. And it's it's really rather surprising. And one of the things that Mark pointed out to me or demonstrated to me, like when we would get into conversations with other people on the topic, is very closely related to what you just were pointing out, which is that this is still an issue that splits the left. So free stuff on the internet as a kind of cause worth championing. And then the other half of the left sees sees it from a worker's rights perspective. You know, if a person does work, if a person has a career, you know, devoting themselves to the creation of things that people use, then does that worker have any rights? This splitting of the left is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me a bit of uh, last year's uh, election campaign because, you know, you, you if you can split the side that's on the left between two factions that are arguing with each other, then the side on the right benefits, obviously. I'm not exactly calling Google right-wing either. I think that would also be a mistake. I think that they're apolitical, and I, I think that's an important part of their strategy. And I think they have more than one leader. There's Eric Schmidt, and then there's that other guy. And, and what they do is they play both sides. So that they will win no matter what. It's like those, it's like oil corporations that donate campaign funds to the Democrat 
candidate and to the Republican candidate. And Google does the same thing. They've got one guy who comes across as a sort of Democrat, kind of more left-wing person that left-wing people uh, like his personality and admire. And then he has meetings with lefty people and has panels with them and stuff. And he, he goes on fresh air and, you know, and talks about lefty sounding stuff. And then they've got another guy in a similar rank in the company who's exactly the same, but just substitute right wing. And then that way, no matter who gets in office, they make more profit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Plan both sides. Plan both sides. That's <laughs> what you can do if you got the money. Unlike us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Greg, Sonia, I always enjoy talking to you, and I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for being with me today on The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers, Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down, Deer Hoof, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.